do thank you for the cross this morning. What a joy it is to know and to walk with Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, that sin no longer has a stronghold over us, that we can have the hope of everlasting life in Christ. We're part of the body of Christ. We're deeply encouraged by these realities, and yet we are aware that we live in a in a world where sin dominates and, and people are burdened and broken underneath that domination. Father, encourage us through your word today. Challenge us through your word. Use it to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. And thank you. You may be seated. It occurred to me that uh, as we wrap up the year, this being the final Sunday of 2017, that it is possible that an entire year has gone by and some of you have not memorized one single Bible verse this year. So I thought we would rescue you just in the nick of time and that we would memorize a verse together. Uh, I study down in the dungeon at my house. It's an unfinished section of the basement where I have set up to study. I call it the dungeon. And uh, I plaster the walls with things just to cover up the gray cement blocks. And last night I looked up and I saw a verse that I had printed out and laminated when I was teaching at a, a day camp chapel some summers ago. And I had literally just taken my staple gun and stapled it to the cement block wall. I pulled it down this morning and brought it with me. I thought it was a good introduction to our message time today. I don't know how well you can see it all the way in the back. It's Proverbs 14.12. Proverbs 14.12. There is a way that seems right to a man. And that's women too. That's mankind. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Do you think we can memorize this verse real quick? Proverbs 14.12. Proverbs 14.12. Say it with me. Ready? Proverbs 14.12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Let's do that again. Proverbs 14.12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. How about one more time? Proverbs 14.12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. That's a pretty serious concept, isn't it? That sin leads to death. I was thinking about this verse, how, how sin can be so attractive. Sin can, can take us places we never really thought we would go. That's what it's saying, right? There is a way that appeals to us. It, it seems right. And yet it leads to death. It, it reminds me of an old redneck joke. Um, what's a redneck's last words? Was this. Did you get that? You know, he, he's standing up on the edge of a cliff and there's a river with rocks 100 feet below. And, and he looks at his buddies and he says, was this. <laughs> a redneck's last words. Was this. I mean, what in the world are you thinking about? You think that you're going to jump and, and I can go right between those rocks, man. Watch this. It's a, it seems so right at the beginning. Hey, let's go to that party. Hey, let's go hang out at that guy's house. Hey, this is too good of an opportunity to pass up. Nobody will ever know. 
It really seems right at the time, never thinking that sin is dynamic. It's not static. Sin has a way of taking over. Sin is a pit bull that latches onto your ankle. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Well, this morning, I want us, with our new ministry in mind, to take a serious look at sin, recognizing that it really is a serious subject. It reminded me, I mentioned this not too long ago, reminded me of a sermon series that I did some years ago that I thought was beneficial. I think we titled it something like, Sin, It's Worse Than You Think It Is. You can go to our website and look that up. It's under sermon series there. There's about 10 messages. Sin, it's worse than you think it is. Started with a biblical theology of understanding sin and then some practical ways of dealing with sin. You know, it's possible this morning that you don't want to admit it to anybody, but you're actually somebody who's I, who, who would identify yourself as being caught and entrapped in repetitive patterns of sin. It, there's a broad range of the ways that sin creeps into our lives and, and ends up taking a stronghold in our lives. And, and we want to break away, but we can't break away. And sometimes we find ourselves in a slow spiral downhill. I want to invite you to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for our text this morning as we expand our thinking on this concept of the seriousness of sin. We have only a two-point outline today. Um, and it begins with the problem of sin. The first problem is the problem of sin, and you want to get your notes nearby and a pencil handy. We're going to read our text first from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and, and give ourselves an understanding of why the Apostle Paul is writing this text. Point one, the problem with sin is, is going to be responded to with point two, the power of Christ. Now, I found out in the early service this morning that I couldn't finish my sermon. And it's kind of funny because you don't understand it. I spent about two and a half hours with the elders yesterday morning in my annual review. And one of the things they pointed out to me is, Pastor Van, it would be a good idea for you to finish your sermons. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, I can do that. And so I don't know what I think about. You know, like, like my case study there has 20 points to it. What makes me think I'm going to finish that? Um, <laughs> On the other hand, I really didn't know what I was going to preach next week yet completely. I knew I wanted to deal with the same subject. So now I know it's going to be point two of our outline. So um, stick that in your Bible. Um, I, I, I might be here next week to preach it, um, depending on the elders evaluation. I guess not, not really. They are nothing but encouraging to me. And I, I love our elders. I love the leadership team that God has raised up here. But it did kind of tickle me inside my head when I had to cut it off in the early service. I was like, well, wait till the elders start showing up. They don't come to the 8 o'clock, you know. And uh, um, wait till they start showing up and realize that I haven't finished my message yet. But anyway, that's an aside. First uh, Corinthians chapter 6 is really an interesting passage. Let's look at verses 9 through 11 as our text this morning. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul is speaking to a church that is deeply mired in a variety of sinful patterns and behaviors. It's a messed up, broken church. It, the church at Corinth was not a model church for us. In fact, it was a church that you want to learn from how not to do church. You read this. And I know that we're interrupting a thought, and I'm going to explain that in a minute, of what he's talking about in chapter 6. 
But listen to these verses and follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, that would be sinful people, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's serious. Sin is serious. It can keep you out of the kingdom of God. Now, the Apostle Paul is not talking here about losing your salvation. He's not talking about people who are born again and then they've committed one of these sins and born again people are capable of committing any sin. He's talking about people who have identified with these sinful patterns as a lifestyle. Talking about the the kind of thing that RU reaches out to. Addictive, habitual, repetitive sin out of which I find I cannot find release. And I'm trapped. I'm an alcoholic. I'm addicted to some area of sexual sin. I'm a thief and I can't stop stealing. There's just repetitive behaviors represented here. But I want you to see one of the greatest sentences in all the Bible in verse 11. It's where I got our title this morning. And he says, and such were some of you. That's a verse of hope, isn't it? That's the reality that people, through Christ, can break the bondage of sin. And such were some of you. I used to be something that I'm not today by God's grace. He goes on to say, But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We're going to look at those three dynamics of change in the gospel of Christ. It's the second half of the outline. If you want to quick pick up Roman numeral 2, letter A, regeneration, letter B, sanctification, and letter C, justification, regeneration, sanctification, and justification. You see, there's a lot of sinful people in the church and outside of the church. And let me make clear, as I reference sinful people, I'm including myself. We are all sinners. It is only by God's grace that we have victory over sin through the power of the shed blood of Jesus Christ at the cross. I'm not looking down my nose at anybody today. I'm speaking with a broken heart today. Longing for sinners to find release from sin. You know, it's just as much the grace of God to keep someone from a life of habitual sin as it is to bring them out of a life of habitual sin. And it all happens through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're born again, that's regeneration. We're set apart unto holiness, that's sanctification. And we stand in a position we've never stood in before, clothed in the righteousness and robed in the righteousness of Christ, that's justification. You come back next week and we'll expand upon that a little bit. Let's deal with the problem of sin today. Why do we need a ministry on Friday nights that is specifically designed to reach out for sinners? Well, I have news for you. We have a ministry that happens three times every Sunday morning that is specifically designed for sinners, and it's called church. Church is for sinners. And I want to tell you that the the rehabilitation rate is not good for those who are dealing with people outside of the transformation of the heart. Change can only occur from the inside out. The prophet in the Old Testament asked the question, can a leopard change his own spots? 
No more than a sinner can change his own stony heart. Well, what's the problem of sin? Let's look at what Paul's talking about here. Before we do, though, let me take just a minute and, and remind us why we're in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because I'm pulling some verses out of context, and I want to be sensitive to a fair treatment of the passage. The Apostle Paul is, is really not so much talking about habitual sin in, this, in these three verses that I've picked, but he's talking about the contrast of what the gospel of Jesus Christ does for someone in bringing them out of their old ways and transforming them into a new way of living. That's also emphasized in his writings in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. 1 Corinthians, as I reference, is a, a letter written to a church filled with messed up, sinful, broken people. The place was an absolute mess. Chapter 5 is well known because that's the chapter where the Apostle Paul says, I even hear that there's sin going on in your church that isn't even acceptable in the world around you. The Gentiles won't even do what you guys are doing. It's like your whole community knows that there's sin going on in your church that the community doesn't even accept. And that was a guy's living with his father's wife. That was was bizarre. He evidently had, had gotten into a relationship with his stepmother. And the problem with the church wasn't just that there's sinners there. The church is filled with sinners. The problem was that at Corinth, they distorted their understanding of the love of God and the love of Christ to the degree that they prided themselves. They were so, uh, so committed to, to love and to grace that they accepted anybody at any level for any reason and they refused to call out sin. Sin is a real problem and we have to deal with it. And and in fact, it's not loving to ignore sin. It's loving to confront sin. The way we do it really matters. And so that's chapter 5. You get into chapter 6 where we are. And in chapter 6, it just got crazy. People in the church are taking each other to court and suing one another. I mean, it kind of was happening like... Jim Shupi over here has a backhoe and he puts in septic tanks. And he, and, and he gets a phone call from, from his brother over here. Brother Buddy calls him up and he says, Hey, Brother Jim, you got a backhoe. Come on over. My toilets aren't flushing right. I need a new septic tank. And you're in the septic tank business. And, and so Jim says, Sure. And he comes rolling in with a cement box on the black back and he digs a hole. And while he swings the boom around and he, he knocks down Miss Tammy's favorite apple tree in the backyard and he catches the corner of the house with the dump truck when he drives by and he rips the spouting off the house and, and he leaves the yard all tore up when he's done with his septic tank work and he, he gets goes to Buddy, I'm all done, Buddy writes him a check, gives it to, to Jim, the septic tank man, and off he goes and, and Miss Tammy goes in the house and flushes the toilet and the water comes backwards into the house. It doesn't go downhill, it comes uphill and you're like, he calls up Jim and Jim says, sorry, I got paid for the job, I did good work, I said, there's something wrong with your other system and and Buddy says, that's enough of that. And so he goes and he finds him an attorney and he's suing Jim. And he says to Jim, you owe me. And so you got brothers in church he's sitting right there and he's sitting right there. And, and they're meeting downtown in court and they're after each other. And Paul says, are you kidding me? You ought to be ashamed of yourself, he says to the church. What are you thinking about? How can you, who are followers of Jesus Christ... Go before a pagan, unsaved, worldly judge and ask him to make judgment for you. Don't you know that you are going to judge the angels? Don't you know that you're seated in the heavenlies? 
Don't you know that you are above this world? He says, what is wrong with you? He says, shame on you. And he says, wouldn't you rather be defrauded? Brother Jim, wouldn't you rather just... No, I'm not going to... Or Brother Buddy suing Jim. I forgot what I was doing here. And Buddy... He's going to just take a loss and he's just going to call up Brother Tom back here who knows how to put in septic systems. And he'll say, would you do this? My and, you know, and Tammy says, no, that's a ripoff. Like, it's all right. It's my We're just going to do that. I would rather be defrauded. I would rather lose the money than go to court and take my Christian brother before an unsaved judge. That's out of order. We don't do that, Paul says. Paul further says in this chapter, he says, wouldn't... Can't you find somebody in the church who is spiritual and godly who will resolve this for you? Can't you come among yourselves and find godly wisdom who will settle this? Why would you, who are, who are walking with Christ, go to the unsaved world to ask them to solve your problems? I'll tell you something. I apply this even to divorces. That if two people who claim to be followers of Christ go to divorce court... They have no business going to an unsaved judge to take an axe and cut their marriage in half. You're not allowed to do that biblically. Paul says, I'm shocked. I'm appalled. Why would you do this? And that's when he writes this in verse 9. And he says, don't you know that these unrighteous people, they're not part of the kingdom of God. And then it's like he gets going and he gives a sampling list. This isn't people who lose their salvation or... Uh, can't be saved. He's just saying this is characteristic of people who are outside of Christ. They're, they're sexually immoral. They, they have replaced God in their lives and they're idolatrous and, and they're adulterers, sexual sin outside of the bonds of marriage, the practice of homosexuality, stealing, greed, selfishness that is out of control. They're drunk. They're revilers. They're wicked people. And they're swindlers and embezzlers. These kind of people do not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, that's what some of you were. You used to be that. Why would you go to those people to have them settle your problems is his point. And in so doing, he sets up a contrast and he shows us a remarkable reality of the gospel. And it is that the gospel changes lives. Here's a sampling list of sin and sinful lifestyle, many of which include addictive patterns. And I'm telling you, you used to be that. The gospel washes you clean from this. It transforms your life. So let's look at our list now. The problem with sin is, is that it's deceptive. Sin is deceptive. We, you know, we don't wake up in the morning and try to figure out, how can I ruin my life today? This is, uh, this is the day. Looking in the mirror and you think to yourself, today's the day that I'm going to enter into behavior that's going to put me in the funeral home. I'm going to do that today. We don't do that any more than we walk in the kitchen some morning, flip the switch on the garbage disposal, and ram our hand down in the sink. I think today's a good day to run my hand down the garbage disposal. And yet, we will, thinking we're making good sense, make decisions that lead places that you might as well just grind yourself up in the garbage disposal because it's going to ruin your life and do nothing but cause pain and misery to you. Practically speaking, all kinds of problems, financial problems, Relationship problems, problems at work, problems in the neighborhood. 
Spiritual speaking, sin is just deceptive. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 9, where he says, um, Do not be deceived. That's spiritual deception he's talking about there. More, not so much a practical deception of, Oh, I thought I was going to a fun party and there I ended my life. He's talking here in a spiritual way that you do not want to deceive yourself that, that these sins don't matter. Don't deceive yourself and think that you can just go on living in a pattern like this and think that it's all going to end well. It doesn't end well. In fact, these people do not inherit the kingdom of God. Their lives need to be transformed like yours and such were some of you. And so sin is deceptive. It's deceptive at a practical level. It's deceptive at a spiritual level. I've read this story several times in the past, but I thought it applied here well. It's an old Boy Scout story, I believe. It's called The Boy and the Rattlesnake. It illustrates the deceptive nature of sin. A little boy was walking down a path and he came across the rattlesnake. The rattlesnake was getting old and he asked, please, little boy, can you take me to the top of the mountain? I hope to see the sunset one last time before I die. The little boy answered, No, Mr. Rattlesnake, if I pick you up, you'll bite me and I'll die. And the rattlesnake said, No, I promise I won't bite you. Just please take me up to the mountain. The little boy thought about it and he finally picked up the rattlesnake and he took it close to his chest and put it underneath his sweatshirt. And he carried it to the top of the mountain because it was cold. They sat there and they watched the sunset together. It was so beautiful. Then after sunset, the rattlesnake turned to the little boy and asked, Can I go home now? I'm tired and I'm old. The little boy picked up the rattlesnake and once again tucked him in under his sweatshirt and held it tightly for safety. And he came all the way down the mountain holding the snake carefully and he took it to his home to give him some food and a place to sleep. The next morning, the rattlesnake turned to the boy and he said, Please, little boy, will you... Take me back to my home now. It is time for me to leave this world and I would like to be at my home now. The little boy felt he had been safe all this time and the snake had kept his word so he would take it home as he asked. He carefully picked up the snake. He took it close to his chest and he carried him back to the woods to his home to die. Just before he laid the rattlesnake down as he reached under his sweatshirt, the rattlesnake turned and bit him in the chest. The little boy cried out and he threw the snake upon the ground and he said, Mr. Snake, why did you do that? Now I will surely die. And the rattlesnake looked up at him and grinned with a hiss. And he said, you knew what I was when you picked me up. Sin is that way, isn't it? Sin is so deceptive. It makes us think we're heading down the right road when we're really not. Sin can be addictive. It was interesting to me to look at this list that Paul included here in 1 Corinthians 6 that several of the dynamics of the nature of the practice of these sins ends up in addictive behavior. I don't have to illustrate to you the nature of our society. Those are two words that didn't used to be connected 30 or 40 years ago. Addictive sin. You didn't hear that so much. I don't know. I, I think that at some level our society is more tolerant of sin and so it's more pre prevalent. I believe that Satan is getting a deeper hold upon the world at large and that sin is as wicked as it's ever been. You know that sin has a way of increasing. The darkness gets darker. 
the seriousness of it gets even more serious. The sin seems to have a hold on people through the power of Satan in a way in our world today that it's just very difficult for people to break out of some of their patterns of sin. It can be addictive. You're very well aware of that. And, and we end up in these cyclical, I want to break away, I can't break away. Back, the, uh, the writer of Proverbs had a way of saying it that's kind of crass as a dog returns to his vomit. And we go back to the very thing that's going to kill you. Thirdly, sin is destructive. Sin destroys. Many of you have witnessed it personally. Sin destroys individuals and sin destroys families. I thought at this point in the sermon it would be a really good idea for us to look at a profile of a sinner. I especially wanted to do this because I wanted to challenge the young people in our audience today to, to really be aware and alert for the reality that sin is insidious. Sin is something that will take you places you don't want to go. And as I wrote in the copied this familiar saying at the bottom there, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. And it'll keep you longer than you want to stay. There's a really good illustration of this in Luke chapter 15. And I wanted to just kind of click over there as a sidebar for a few minutes. And this is where we'll actually end our message today. It won't take us long. It's a familiar story. It's Luke 15. I invite you to turn there with me. As we look at the power of sin over a life and and as we profile what this really looks like and how it destroys an individual, a young man that we don't know his name, but in here we call him the prodigal. And he's the son of evidently a very fine man and he's divided his home. Not only has he des destroyed his own life, this boy, but he's destroyed his home life. As we go through this list of 20 dynamics of what's going on, and we'll click them off quickly, especially young people, and you ask yourselves, is this me at all? Am I demonstrating any of these kinds of attitudes or behaviors in my life? You need to really wake up and recognize that sin is so destructive. This is a familiar passage as well. It's Luke 15. It's a trilogy. Uh, Jesus tells three stories that all have a similar point. Um, the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and then the story of the lost son. Let me read it to you quickly. I can read it just about as fast as I can tell it. Make sure we're all together on this story. And he said, Jesus said, verse 11 of Luke 15, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He's talking about his inheritance. And he divided his property between them. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so with his plan together in his mind, he arose, verse 20, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father said to him, saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. And now he's found. What a father, huh? What a father. Let's take a look at this boy and what's in his heart and what's in his mind. What's in his attitude framework and how sin gets him. First of all, I want you to see what a self-centered, number one, what a self-centered young man he was. He wakes up one morning and he says, Father, divide the property, divide the inheritance with me. Well, that's actually number two. That's very disrespectful. And it's number three. It's very unloving because it is actually looking at his father and saying, hey, pops, why don't you kick the bucket so that I can get my inheritance sooner than later? It's highly disrespectful, highly unloving, highly arrogant and selfish of him to want this to happen. You see, number four, what you have to realize that in this home, he's a very dissatisfied young man. This is a guy who slams his bedroom door and says, I can't stand living in this house. I can't stand it. I can't wait till I leave this place. That's this guy. It's this guy. There's nothing in the story that indicates that this was a bad home. In fact, all the indicators of the story would tell us that this was a wonderful place to grow up. It's evidently a large farm or plantation. He has hired hands that are significant. He's a wealthy man, evidently, by implication in the story. He's taught his son how to work. He's He's got good equipment on the farm. He's got a wonderful bedroom. He's got a beautiful home. I, I, I would take it that he has a loving mother. He's got a father with some kind of a, a God-centric world. He's a God-fearing, God-centered man. He's trying to teach his son what is right. And this boy is so self-centered and disrespectful and unloving and dissatisfied with God's provision for his life that he becomes, number five, very restless. You know, if I could just get out of here, I could figure out what life's all about. I'm going to just get on my motorcycle. I'm just going to ride, man. I'm just going to go find out. I'm going to figure out what life is all. Well, you better ride very, very fast. Because when you get to where you're going, guess who's still there? You are. And guess who the problem is? Is you. He's restless. He thinks if he can get somewhere else, he'll have a better life than where he is. And he's very unwise, number six. And it says that he takes all of his money and he... He's so unwise that he spends all of what he has in a very short time. What has taken his father a lifetime to accumulate, he spends very rapidly, it says, in riotous or indulgent living. Number seven is indulgent. You can't live riotously without indulging yourself. He engages in behavior that's inappropriate. This riotous living makes us think, number eight, that he's living a reckless lifestyle. He's not being safe with his choices. He's engaged in a party life that's at a whole level that brings danger to him. And so he's characterized as being foolish, number nine. 
but he's unprepared. He proves that he's a fool because he's unprepared. It says that a famine comes. They have a few months with no rain. Everything dries up. The party life dies down. All of his girlfriends leave him and they don't think he's so cool anymore because he doesn't have... He doesn't have any money. He's been totally, number 11, unrealistic. We know that he's been immoral. and his, it's, it's, it's there. He's immoral. He, he's thinking that he's really something. He's thinking, I'll bet you, I'll bet you as soon as he left home, he tattooed barbed wire around his bicep. <laughs> and I, I'll bet he cut his shirt sleeves off and he walked around. And as long as he was flashing his $20 bills, man, they came to him fast. If, if you have barbed wire on your bar bicep today. I think you're cool, but don't. I don't mean to offend. Keep coming to my church here. He's unrealistic. He's immoral. Then the, the famine hits, and all of a sudden, the guy who had it all together, the guy that thought he was so cool, the guy that was Mr. Restless on his motorcycle, racing as fast as he could to the good time life, ends up, number 13, very needy. He has nothing left. He has no resources He doesn't know it, but he has become, number 14, he has become trapped in sin. Sin is a pit bull. It bit him on the ankle and it decided not to let go. And and now he's slowing down enough to realize that he's in big trouble. Not only is he trapped in a faraway country with no resources and he doesn't know what to do, but just think about this. He's hungry. He's hungry. I don't know how many times through the years in ministry where I've seen people that have been just so incredibly broken in their sin and it might be late in the evening or I encounter them and I know them, I recognize them. One of the things I do is, hey man, let's go down here and get you something to eat. When's the last time you ate, man? I don't know, I ate yesterday. He's even hungry. At his father's house, the refrigerator is filled. The pantry shelves are stacked. The barns are overflowing. There's calves to be slaughtered. And this guy is starving to death. He's so cool in his sin. He's now hungry. He's lonely. I take it that everybody's left him. He didn't have any options. He's lonely. He's broke. He doesn't have any money left, number 17. And now he's humiliated. Somebody who thought so highly of himself is now humiliated to the degree, number 19, that I would suggest that he's unrecognizable as his father's son. He's so humiliated that he's standing in a man's pig pen who has hired him the lowest job on the totem pole for this young Jewish boy. And he's standing in ankle-deep muck And he's looking at a five-gallon pail with some swill in it. And he decides that he's going to swish it around and reach his arm down in there because maybe there's an apple with a little bit of core. Or maybe there's a corn cob with a little bit of kernel on it. And he can eat their husks. He's unrecognizable, I think, to his father. And he's dirty, number 20. Sometimes I have to go to regional jail. Sometimes I know what I'm into and sometimes I don't. I I get a phone call from somebody, Pastor Van, would you go see this person? And I click on their website and I look it up and their their mugshots are there. And I scroll down and I look at the faces. 
And sometimes when I look at some of the faces that sin has evidently destroyed their lives, I think to myself, I wonder if their mom would even recognize them today. Their mugshots, you know, that you're looking at. Here's this guy, you want to walk up to him and you want to say to him, Hey man, how's this working for you? How's this going? How's this sin life doing for you? And I don't know about you, but I have a hard time being like the father in the story. The story ends so well, doesn't it? There's the father. He's God in the story, in the parable. He's God. He's on the porch and he's watching the the far trail. And he sees the profile and he knows it's his son by the way he walks. He runs, man. He runs to him. The guy still stinks like hogs and he hugs him as daddy does. And he, and the boy begins with his speech that he's got all prepared. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. That's repentance. We'll talk more about that next week. And can I just hire on with you? I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Would you just hire me? And I'll live back in the bunkhouse and I'll be happy to run your tractors for you. No, boy. He hollers at a servant, go get a robe, go get a ring, go get the fatted calf. All of the riches of the Father are the Son's. That's grace. That's mercy. That's salvation. Not one bit deserved by the punk. Not one bit deserved by the guy who orchestrated his life to play the songs of sin. And there he comes... And he's transformed by the love of his Father. You know, by God's grace, on Friday nights in Shenandoah Junction, West Virginia, people who have gone far away from their fathers and their mothers, and they've disobeyed their teachers, and they're dirty maybe, or maybe they're not so dirty, on the outside will walk in here, and there will be people here who will hug them, and who will point them to a Heavenly Father, who can give them a brand new beginning. You know, I think Fellowship Bible Church needs this ministry as much as people need the ministry. That God in His grace would help us to facilitate the gospel to be the agent of change that it is. Can I ask you a question? Do you really believe that the gospel transforms lives? Do you really believe that the gospel transforms lives? I do. We do. By God's grace, we're going to see it do its cleansing work. Amen? What happens at the foot of the cross is a beautiful thing. Hallelujah for the cross. Where the blood of Christ can cleanse us from all sin and make us into new creations in Christ. Amen? Amen. Will you stand with me, please? And so, Father, would you just challenge us this morning with the reality of the danger of sin. Both our positional sin and our practical sin. That one destroys our lives one day at a time and the other destroys us for eternity. Thank you for the redeeming grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you're a loving Heavenly Father and you see value in sinners. Father, we dedicate this RU ministry to you.
We dedicate ourselves to you, that we would be facilitators of the gospel. We would be evangelists. We would be disciplers. We would love the unlovely. Father, there's people in this room, no doubt, that need to humble their hearts and they need to show up and they need to just begin to walk with you in a whole new way and break the sin cycle. And they need to see Jesus Christ become Lord of their lives. And so, Father, uh, begin and continue a work that you're doing in all of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.